1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? My friends, I'm not given to wild, unsupported statements. And I tell you that we must evacuate this planet immediately. Jor-El, be reasonable. Once there was a civilization, much like ours, but with a greater intelligence, greater powers, and a greater capacity for good. moment that world was destroyed but there was one survivor now wouldn't that beat all get out because of the wisdom and compassion of Jor-El because he knew the human race had the capacity for goodness he set us his only son. His name is Kal-El. He will call himself Clark Kent. But the world will know him as Superman. This year, Superman brings you the gift of flight. Superman, the movie. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? It's a very, very special Is It Yours because it is the 100th episode. 
So I had to think about who did I want to invite to be on the 100th episode. And I thought, well, since now I have 100 episodes, which is like really, really cool in my mind, I might as well bring the person who's most guilty of subjecting this audience to me. And that's my buddy, Scott Gardner, who, who is more responsible than anybody in the world for the fact that I'm podcasting every week. Guilty. What's up, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing really good. I, 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 you know, I, I love doing bins, and I really enjoy doing Listen to the Prophets. But there is something to be said for the fact that this, this show is kind of my baby. I came up with this on my right. own, and I don't have a regular co-host. And I, I, I got to tell you, I'm very proud that I've hit 100 episodes. They may not all be good. But I'm still proud of having done it. <laughs> no, that it it is. It's a, it's quite an accomplishment because you know, as you know, my my podcast career is, uh, you know, while I have had certain you know milestones with Two True Freaks proper and uh, you know now back to the bins is well over 400 episodes. Uh, my past, you know, of podcasting is also littered with shows that didn't make it out of, you know, uh, out of the teens. So yeah, it is podcasting, you know, for, for folks that have never done a podcast, of their own, it's a hell of a lot of work, you know, and it's, it's a lot of commitment. And, uh, well, you know, podcasting history is full of shows that, you know, may have started really strong and, uh, and, you know, a, a year or two later, at most, sometimes uh, they're they're not around anymore. So, you know, 100 is yeah, it's nothing to sneeze at. It's quite an accomplishment, and uh, you should be proud of it because this is a, a really good show. I really enjoy listening, and, uh, and it's and a says very a lot because a lot of times I know you don't agree. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but that's that's the fun part of this is that. I think this is, you know, not only is it a, a brilliant idea, it's one of those ideas. I, I get this all the time about, you know, what I do where I work, that now it exists. People are always like, wow, you know, why, why didn't anybody think of this before? That's kind of how I feel about this show is like, what a brilliant idea, the Jaws scale. Why did nobody ever think of this before? You know, now that it exists, it seems like such a no brainer, but it is. It's a, it's a really smart and, and funny concept, but I think. It works really well as, as one of those drop-in, drop-out shows, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I mean that in the nicest way possible episode. because you can pick it's which one of those shows. That, exactly, exactly. You know, which you know, you know, that was always my with back to the bins, especially when we went to actually telling people in advance, you know, what comics we were going to cover on every episode. I got really nervous. You know, were we going to become one of those drop in, drop out shows as opposed to, you know, how I always at least fantasized in my mind people were listening to every single episode. It's probably not really true, but that's what I thought. But I think there's something to be said for drop in, drop out shows. And that's how I've been with this show because, you know, sometimes there's movies I'm like, well, I've never seen that, so I don't want to be, pre you know, prejudiced on it by somebody else's opinion before I see it. Um, and then there's other movies that's like, oh, my God, I love that movie or I hate that movie. You know, let me listen to, you know, to see what these guys say. So th that's the beauty of it for me. And I, I really enjoy the show. And, well, you know, you. I don't disagree with you near as much as you might think that I do. So. A lot of times it's just me just – I like to give you shit. So you know, you'll pick some movie you know, like Harry Potter or something like, really, that crap? But yeah, I'm just – I'm being you – know, I'm playing with you because like you said, you know, you can't – if every single show was Jaws, 
then, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose of doing the show. You know, so you've well, got to, to do the, to paraphrase you know, an old, you know, an old expression. If every episode, if every show is yours, then no shows are. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, but I, you know, not only did I give thought to who my co-host would be in this particular episode, but I also had to give some thought as to something that would be a special movie. Uh, and if you haven't seen the artwork for this episode, we're covering the Superman the movie tonight. And I happen to know that this is Scott's favorite movie of all time. So that makes it a little special. But then also, those of you who are loyal listeners to the Back to the Bins will remember a couple of years ago, I did took a poll of quite a few people. I, I would say probably like 100 people, whatever, where they were listing their top 10 favorite comic movies in order. And then I was rating them based on that where they ranked. If, if it was the number one movie for the person, it got 10 points. Number two got nine points and so on and so forth. And then I added them up. And Superman the movie was the favorite comic movie for our audience for Back to the Bins. And I'm assuming our audience for Back to the Bins is very similar to the audience for this show. So this movie has a an extremely loyal following. Uh but all that said, it's also been covered to death. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, there's so many different places where you could, you know, get a review of this movie. So I don't know if we're going to go for the traditional review style. I mean, if anything, they had the uh, Superman movie minute over at the Fire and Water podcast where they would look at five-minute clips of the movie and then they'd talk about an hour or so on each five-minute clip. So you could come up with hours and hours and hours of content just about the substance of this movie. So rather than go really too, too deeply into the substance, I want to get into a little bit of its legacy and what it means to you and to me on a personal level, where it's, you know, where it's come from, what, what's important about it, what, you know, what it, what it's led us to. Uh, and I'll start off by saying, Look at what comic book movies were before this one. <laughs> yeah. And you just see what a huge leap the whole genre took. You know, people want to talk about the, the huge leap that it took, you know, in recent days, and it has. But this one is like the foundation that those movies are built on. And I, I think that's really, really important when you look at this. And I don't think you need to look at it with historical perspective to appreciate it. But right. when you add that to it, I think it just ma makes it all the more meaningful. Uh, Absolutely. Well, you know, anybody that's ever been, you know, Facebook friends with me or, or just followed me on social media or what has probably gotten really tired of seeing me post this over the years but every so often, you know, a new comic book, well, these days it's like every week, but there's, you know, new comic book movies come out all the time, you know, new superhero movies and new lists all the time, always lists, lists of, you know, the, the greatest superhero movies, the greatest this, the greatest that. And very, I haven't done it in, in some time now, but for the longest time I was, you know, very frequently I kept posting the same thing over and over again which was some variation of, you know, either a picture or a clip or a trailer or something from Superman the movie and posting the same caption on it, the winner and still champion. But I, I still feel that way, even with the absolutely incredible uh, 
movies that we've gotten, you know, big superhero movies, big comic book movies that we've gotten. Um, I mean, just as an example, you know, Infinity Avengers Infinity War. I consider that a damn near perfect comic book movie. It's it's everything I'd ever wanted to see on the big screen out of a comic book. I mean, imagery that I never thought I would see, you know, on the big screen, you know, from a comic book in a good way, you know, that that works, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But even even with that movie being you know, quite possibly the pinnacle of comic book movies, in my opinion, I still think Superman the movie, I, I don't want to say it's necessarily better, but I still like it more. And and I've tried to, you know, with the, you, you always run that danger of if you overanalyze something or, you know, peek behind the curtain too much, you run that risk of spoiling the magic, you know. I'm very aware of this because of what I do professionally. You know, I, I, I never want to ruin the magic either for myself or for anybody else. But, I, you know, at the same rate, I, you know, I like to analyze things. So I've tried to figure it out. What is it about this movie that, that just works for me and keeps it at the top of the heap? And I'm so glad that you said that you wanted to cover this from from kind of, you know, an emotional level from, you know, how what does it mean to us? Because I think ultimately – I can only ever speak for myself. I, I think ultimately for me, it's the fact that um, unlike some other movies that, you know, that I've, I've cherished all my life that I discovered when I was a kid or whatever, that, that maybe fade with age or don't hold up as well, or I just don't quite get the same feeling as I did every single time I sit down and watch Superman, the movie Especially if I watch it beginning to end, you know, all the way through to, you know, the very end with, uh, you know, no, sir, don't thank me, warden. You were all part of the same team. Good night. I get the same warm fuzzies I got when I was a 10 year old and watching it in the theater. You know, I, I just it it works for me on that level. It brings me back to my childhood. It makes me feel good. And I mean, that's, you know. That's what we ask movies to do for us, you know, is to is to make us feel good, and it and it does. It it makes me smile. It makes me happy. It makes me feel good, and I believe in it. You know, I mean, it, it had that tagline of you know you'll believe a man can fly. It not only did I believe he could fly, but it wasn't even that for me. It's like I I just I believe in Superman. Because of that movie, because of the the way it's structured, the the story it tells, and most importantly, the the portrayal that Chris Reeve gives in that movie, I walk out going, that was Superman, you know. Mm-hmm. It's funny with this movie that my experience with it is, it'll temporarily not be my favorite or not be among my absolute top. It's not always my favorite. Uh, but it always rises again. And it's a, just a weird thing. Like I, I, To explain what I'm saying is, uh, this movie came out and I loved it. Then they came out with Superman 2. And for the longest time in my mind, I created an illusion. And it's not a very big illusion. But looking back on it, I do think it is. That Superman 2 was better than Superman. Because now he fights other super-powered yeah. people. 
And right. then eventually I watched him with a more critical eye and I was like, no, this is still, Superman is still a better movie than Superman 2 for many reasons. And part of it is the awe that it inspires in me. And that awe is primarily in the first half. The awe kind of comes off a little bit. There's moments afterwards that it's still there, but the awe kind of comes almost to a conclusion when he flies from the Fortress of Solitude. And then it becomes more of an adventure story for me. But the the sequences in Krypton and the sequences of him, you know, as a young man and all of that, it, it really, really is a comic book come to life in a way that I never imagined they could do. And it's something that they have not surpassed, even with, like you say, Avengers Endgame, which I love, or Avengers uh, Infinity War, which I love, or the first Avengers movie, or Captain America First Avenger. I love all of those, and I can rank them differently, and I can rank them ahead of this at times, but they do not inspire more awe than this origin sequence that we get in this movie. Right. Right. Um, I, I think that's one of the things that this movie has going for this character when handled properly has going for it that, you know, either fortunately or unfortunately, no other hero, no other comic book property, no other team of heroes, whatever has. And, and that's a, a scope and, and a sense of majesty. There's something very majestic about Superman, the movie, at least the way it unfolds, you know, the origin story unfolds in this one. And I think Donner is brilliant in the way he structured this film um, because a lot of people will refer to it as kind of a three-act play. And it, and it is to a degree. You know, you've got the Krypton sequence, you've got the Smallville sequence, and then you've got everything else that happens in Metropolis. But you're also right, Paul, and, and I think it's a brilliant observ- observation that it's also kind of a, a two-act structure as well because – the first half of that, you know, the beginning of the movie all the way up through the, the end of the Fortress of Solitude sequence, that's a science fiction movie. And once you're past that and, and we get to the Metropolis portion through the end of the movie, then it's pretty much a straight up superhero movie. We, we still get, you know, bits and pieces of the sci-fi. You know, we're, we're reminded of it. You know, if you see the uh, the full version, you know, he revisits the Fortress of Solitude, which, you know, that was not part of the theatrical release. And then, of course, one of, I think one of the big reasons that the kryptonite scene has always been one of my favorites is that the moment that kryptonite is revealed, you know, we're a couple hours into the movie at that point, and you're suddenly reminded, oh, yeah. This was a, this was a science fiction movie. This started out as a science fiction movie. This is a this is a space movie. This was a you know this is a space alien movie, and even the motif that John Williams uses in the score suddenly the Krypton theme, which we have not heard since the beginning of the movie, or at least since you know Clark discovers the crystal in the barn, we haven't heard it in all that time. So we kind of forgot about it. But now all of a sudden, as soon as that kryptonite's revealed, oh yeah, that theme comes back again, and you're reminded of you know the origins from the beginning of the movie, and so it's just it has this brilliant structure to it that that works on all those levels. I, I really like Superman when people remember that you know at its core this this is a, a science fiction story, 
Um, it's it's unlike any other kind of science fiction story, but that's what makes it cool as a superhero story too, because there's nothing else quite like it that has that that same majesty to it. You know, even movies that play on a huge canvas, you know, again like uh, Avengers: Infinity War or Avengers: Endgame that are playing on probably the biggest canvas we've ever seen a superhero movie play on up to this point. You know, where they're truly dealing with, you know, cosmic beings and, you know, really far out cosmic concepts, even that somehow, at least to my mind, strangely pales in comparison to the the pure majesty that, that Superman the movie has, you know, in, in its scope, in, in its structure. And again, I think that's just part of the, the secret magic to it. Yeah, I agree with you. What do you think about just to kind of get into some particulars on it a little bit, what do you think about the fact of the way they recreated Krypton, the way they took what we had in the comics and said, we're going to turn that on its ear a little bit and make this into this ice planet and very alien in its presentation. And and I'll, I'll start off by answering my own question in that I think that really does work in this movie. I don't know if it worked quite as much when they brought it into the comics the same way, although sometimes I do. It, sometimes I don't. I go back and forth, and it probably is more dependent upon what writer and artist are doing it. Uh, but in the movie, I think what, what I get, the feeling I get is that we're coming from this very, very alien planet with a very, very alien culture, and yet this man manages to come here to Earth and he's Superman. He's not super alien. He is the best of all of us, even though he's not right. from here. He's teaching us how to be right. better, even though he isn't from here. And there's just something about that that just, you know, I, I think the alien nature of that planet adds to that. And, and, and I think it is one of the things that adds to the, to the maj- majesty of it all. So now, right. now that I've thrown my opinion in your face, what do you think? Well, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a complicated answer, but um, I, I guess the best way I, I could say it is that thank God I saw this when I was ten. You know, thank God I saw this for the first time before I was the person I am now that would look at the comic book material and, and get really angry that they didn't do a literal interpretation. You know, that they didn't do it the way I had seen it in the comics that I grew up with. Because while I was familiar with Superman going into Superman the movie as a 10-year-old, you know, I, I didn't yet have a lifetime of, of comic books behind me, you know, of, of continuity. And, and, you know, I I had, I guess, what you would call a passing familiarity. I had read some comics. I'd seen him on TV with, you know, like the Super Friends and that uh, at the time I thought absolutely awesome, uh, Superman, the musical, but I've since seen it and realized that I must've been brain damaged as a child or something. Cause that thing is God awful. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. That one with, uh, yes, I, do. I think it's Bob holiday, I think was the guy's name that played Superman. It's terrible. But I mean, those were my touch tones, you know, my touch point. And of course the, the old George Reeves show too, you know, those are my touchstones with, with Superman and none of those, uh, to my memory anyway, other than the comics, really touched on the origin. Superman was already already established. Well, no, no, know, the George the Reeves show did have Superman's origin in it. In fact, the origin there was probably more true to the comics than, right. than this movie is. 
Yeah, but that that would be year for me. That would be years later that I would actually see that. Whenever I would catch it on TV, it was always you know an, an episode. You know what I mean? It, it was kind of like Star Trek. You know, you just you know turn on the TV and it was just some random episode, but it wasn't necessarily you know like you know again with Star Trek, I, I didn't see the, like the Cage or uh, or you know the earliest episodes. You know, for for quite a number of years later. Um, so I I don't remember ever seeing the the origin episode. Um, I'm trying to remember if that was part of Superman and the Mole Man or not. I don't remember, but I didn't see that until uh, I think I was a teenager, maybe even older than that before I ever saw that. I didn't so, see Superman and the Mole Man in its original form until it came out on VHS tape. I always yeah, saw it as I the think two that might part. Be, I saw it too. I always saw it as the two part episode of the series before that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever seen it until it came out on video, but uh, but no, I you know it, it's hard for me to be objective of that because you know uh, of uh, you know my love for this movie and and having seen it as a kid and everything, but it, it I like how it works in I think it works really well in this continuity you know the 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 very um I, you know kind of kind of sterile but. What works for me with this is that yes, it's very alien. Yes, it's kind of sterile and it's it's just kind of bizarre and everything, but it works because the Kryptonian people, specifically uh, Jor-el and Lara, they're still as advanced as they are, and we don't quite understand their science and their technology and everything. They're still people. Uh, Jor-El and Lara clearly love each other and they love their child and they've had this child together. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm very hesitant to ever criticize John Byrne's run on, on Superman. Cause I, I hold that up as like the pinnacle of Superman, but he did do some things that I do consider to be mistakes or at least things I'm not crazy about. And one of the things he did was he kind of sort of adopted this Krypton from Superman, the movie, but then he changed the Kryptonian people to make them just as alien as the world that they lived on. And I don't think it quite works because Jarl and Lara not actually being a couple and not actually being a thing and loving each other or loving their child seems really a bizarre story choice to me. So it, it works really well in this movie because the people are still people, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Um, my personal favorite origin of Superman is probably the um, Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. I forget who wrote it, but it's the one that's illustrated by Kurt Swan and Mar- Murphy Anderson. I think it first appeared in The Amazing World of Superman, that big oversized, like, treasury size book. Right, I just love that. And that's a classic, like, Silver Age origin story of Superman. Um, the, the Kryptonians were just people. They were far in advance of us, but they weren't a race of Superman like the Superman origin started out where the Kryptonians were actually super on their planet. They're, they're not in this version, but as much as I love that version of the origin, it'd probably be kind of boring on the big screen. And not only might it run the risk of being a little boring, um, but then you also run the risk that it's, it's going to look really kind of maybe silly and dated as time goes on. Because you look back again at like the George Reeves version of the origin of Superman 
that looks really, you know, what, you know, anytime you, you predict the future or you try to do futuristic things or things that are from a more advanced society and science fiction in an illustrated form or in a visual form, you know, 10, 20, 50 years later, it's going to look really silly. You know, you look back at old 50s stories like the Legion of Superheroes. Their technology is completely ridiculous. It, it's so laughable now, but it was futuristic at the time. Right. So I think by taking that different approach of Krypton's a completely alien society that's all made of crystals and we don't know how the hell it works. It might as well be magic. I think really lends into the timelessness of this movie because the only things that really um, date the movie and and where it's starting to maybe show its age a little bit would be the the modern Earth things because for the first like at least half of the movie we're taking place on Krypton and then we're taking place in whatever the hell year it's supposed to be in Smallville. I've been trying to figure this out for years, what year exactly it's supposed to be. But I I'm guessing it's sometime in the in the mid to late 50s. Well, let's let's it's not actually, let's ponder that for a moment cuz I just feel like that's a good question. This movie came out in 1978. 8. Mm -hmm. So it's and the modern scenes are supposed to be current. So in yes. the modern scenes, Clark Kent slash Superman is, I believe, 30 years old. Yes. So if, if he's 30 in 1978, that would mean he was born around 1948, and he would be right. in high school around 1962, 1963, around there. So that's where I'm putting those scenes. Well, the problem with that is that when he turns 18 – and he goes to the Fortress of Solitude, and he goes on his journey with Jor-El. Jor-El tells him flat out, and we hear it in the dialogue, that by the time you return to the confines of your world, 12 of your years will have passed, which puts that at 1966. No, no. So I don't well, I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm saying some time passes between the first scene when we see him racing the train and when he finally leaves. I'm saying he's he's in high school, he's about 15, 16 in that first scene. I'm I'm not I'm think in my mind, in my head canon, maybe this isn't fair, but in my head canon it's not like Pa Kent dies and he runs. He stays around and right. helps his mother get back on her feet and get things up and running a little bit before he takes off. So I'm no. thinking another year or two passed there. That that I mean that's very possible, but at the same rate you've also got things that I think were supposed to um that were supposed to kind of date where we are. I'm doing a quick search here. I'm wondering when Bill Haley's um Rock Around the Clock was the big well, hit. I always put that what? in the 50s. You know, I, I'm sure that's in the 50s. I, I don't know exactly when. Right. Uh, but it, and that's, you know, some, that's sometime in the 1950s. You're right about that. Uh, and while you're looking at that, I'm going to change the subject a little bit, but we can always re come, come back to it. And it's almost like a, con a contrast in what I'm thinking here, because despite the criticism I've heard of it, and I've heard a lot of criticism of it, I love Marlon Brando as, as Jor-El. Uh, 
there's something about him, about his presentation, that, that there's a certain majesty about him that I think he portrays in it, even though I know he's reading the lines off cue cards because he refused to memorize them. Uh, it's still, there's something about him that just fits the role, even though he's also a very, very well-known actor. On the other hand, I think it would have been a tremendous mistake for them to cast a well-known actor as Superman, which they were considering doing. Right. I think, I think I, you know, they, they couldn't have done better than finding Christopher Reeve. Well, what's funny to me is that apparently nobody stopped to think about the kids because, yes, they may have cast who, you know, someone who at that time was one of the most well-known actors in the world, but I was 10. I didn't know who the hell Marlon Brando was. And for the longest time, this was the only thing I knew him from until I was old enough to finally see, like, The Godfather. Um, and to this day, honestly, I think Superman and The Godfather are about the only things I've ever seen with him in it. So um, it, it's funny that they they got him and paid that, you know, enormous sum of money for him for the recognition factor, which I'm sure must have worked for somebody out there, but it was completely lost to me as a 10-year-old. I'm sure it was. Um, I'm sure but there I were also a lot of parents who were taking their children to the movies and said, oh, this one's probably good. It's got Marlon Brando in it. Right. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, yeah. I am a couple of years older than you, and I was familiar with Marlon Brando, and I had already seen The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two by the time this came out. Uh as well as on the waterfront and a streetcar named Desire. So I was very familiar with Marlon Brando. Uh, but like I said, I, I think he, he fits the part perfectly in his own way. But again, I also think, you know, casting Christopher Reeve was huge. Uh, just looking, you know, they, they considered uh, Al Pacino, James Caan, Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Dustin Hoffman, and Muhammad Ali. To play the part. <laughs> I mean, that's just ridiculous. I'm sorry. but the, and, and it's not even just Muhammad Ali. It's every one of them. There isn't one actor in there that I think. And, and this, some of them are great actors. Uh, some of them are not. Uh, but I, I, do, I don't believe any of them could have done justice to the part. I, I, I think, you know, you needed an unknown in the part. And it would have been ridiculous if you had one of those guys. One of the things that, you know, I talked about how, like, things change, in my opinion. And one of the ones that's kind of had a yo-yo effect is uh, Otis. Because <laughs> you'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll remember, I've made fun of Otis in this movie, and I've talked about how cheesy he is and all that. And yet, as time has gone on, I saw the movie, it didn't bother me. Time went on, it started to bother me. More time has gone on, and now I find it charming again. I don't know why. Otis... He, it's never really bothered me. Um, about the only time the Otis stuff uh, starts to wear on me a bit is my my favorite version of the movie is the the longest version, which thank God they finally officially released on uh, on Blu-ray uh, not long ago. I think it was about a year or two ago. Um, I love that version of the movie because it has all all of the available footage that was shot that was usable for the movie is in the movie. So it's it's a massively long movie, but I, I love that version of it. But unfortunately, a lot of the extra footage is just more padding to the Otis scenes. They do get a little bit long, especially when we first meet him 
and he's doing his long walk, you know, from the streets of Metropolis down into Luther's lair, that scene feels like it's like quadrupled with all the extra added footage that they put in there. But it never bothered me. I I always kind of liked it. I never really questioned it. But as I've gotten older and that's the, you know, there's two, two scenes in the movie or, or two, you know, elements of the movie that as it ages seem to get more people get more vocal in their criticism about it, you know, by the years. And one of them is, is the Otis stuff. So I, I started to kind of think about that and analyze it. Like, why doesn't it bother me? Or why do you know, more importantly, why do I think it works? And I think it works because I've really had a lot of fun over the years analyzing, um, Gene Hackman's portrayal of Lex Luthor and why does that work for me when his Luthor is so far removed from comic book Luthor at least comic book Luthor of that era and the reason it works for me is for one Luthor really is an evil bastard and it takes us a while as the audience to realize just how evil and pretty sick the guy is well, you have to do is listen to Valerie Perrine and you know. Yeah, right? But, I mean, even with her saying that, we, we haven't gotten any evidence of it so far. So far, he just seems like kind of a lighthearted guy. He's he's jokey. He's funny. But we're not yeah. really – when we first meet him, we're not getting anything from him that says, oh, this guy's really – you know, he's messed up. It's and it, and really, it, it speaks to his portrayal, though, because it's the way Gene Hackman plays him that, that gives you that. Because right off the bat – we first meet him. He's pushing a, a police officer in front of a train. Right. So, I mean, right. it's hard to be much more evil than that. <laughs> but <laughs> but just, just his, his the lighthearted way he portrays it is, you know, it, it kind of disguises that a little bit. But it's, right. But it's not a conflict. He's not... He's not presenting it one way that's not true to the character. It's just he doesn't care. He's evil, right. but he's also very, very dismissive of anyone who isn't him. Therefore, right. he doesn't even see, like, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, what? I killed a guy. What? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that's one of the reasons that, that ultimately the, the Otis stuff works for me because I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, why why Otis? Why what's why would he even have this guy around? And ultimately it's because not only is he evil, he's an egomaniac. And he's constantly referencing the fact that he's smarter than other people, you know, he he references his IQ and so he's keeping Otis around and, and Miss Tashmacher I feel to a certain degree too uh to continually kind of boost his ego and, and feel that much more superior to them. Cause he, he say, he even questions it at one point, you know, why is the most, uh, brilliant diabolical, I forget the exact line, uh, you know, of all time surrounding himself with total nincompoops. I think you said, so, that I mean, he's putting these people down, <laughs> but you know, he's putting these people down to their, he, he treats Otis terribly, but it's, it's all in feeding his own, ego uh in that situation yeah because he he wants a henchman to kind of you know so he doesn't have to get his own hands dirty and will take care of stuff for him but he also thinks you know that his own mind is so superior that he doesn't need 
to have an intelligent henchman. He just needs a henchman. Right. right. And Otis is, you know, dumb enough that he idolizes him no matter how badly he treats him. I think all of that is really very well evidenced and, and really summed up very well in the second movie when he uses Otis to escape and then he just ditches him. And I've often wondered, would that scene be even that much more effective if not only had he kicked Otis loose, but actually had killed him in the process? And I've kind of wondered, you know, that would be very dark. Oh, um, because I think that is one of the biggest differences between the first and second movies is that they lightened the tone. And I, I think to a certain degree, kiddified uh, the tone with the second movie. It, it's not near as dark. Um, but if that had been part of, you know, the, the, the narrative, you know, with the first movie and, and Donner's still in charge, that may very well have been how that scene had ended was not only did he, you know, kick him loose, but you know, ended him in the process. Cause that is the last time we see, uh, Otis at that point, you know, his, his story's done. Right. Yeah. That, that is where, where we, we say goodbye to Otis. But again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why I found his character to be cringeworthy five years ago and yet not now. And I don't know, I couldn't tell you exactly why, but, that's just the way I feel when I watch it. Uh, it. It no longer bothers me as it did, and I don't know. I, it's 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 a strange situation. Uh, but Lex Luthor, I, I think Gene Hackman is one of the actors that I would say uh, he's been in some really bad movies. I don't believe <laughs> I've ever seen him give a bad performance. Right, right. And he's just so effortless in the way he does these performances, whether it's, uh, you know, Lex Luthor being, you know, just uh, almost, you know, evil with a grin, I'd say, or, you know, when he was in Unforgiven and he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor or put him back to Bonnie and Clyde. He's just been in so many movies where I look at him and I marvel about how well he he portrays whatever character he's doing. Now, I understand he did refuse to uh, portray Lex Luthor as bald in this movie. Uh, right. You know, except for that final scene, which they kind of even had to cajole him into doing. But, you know, it's, you know, it's fine. They, they showed all the different wigs and they, you know, they, they made it clear that he, he was bald. So that didn't bother me at all. Uh, and, and like you said, you know, you've, you've given me good enough reasons for why he would keep Otis and Miss Tessmacher around. I wouldn't have minded seeing more of a history of what Lex Luthor had done to this point, because clearly the police had him on their, you know, in their sights and they were trying right. to follow him and, and get a hold of him. So he had a history. He wasn't new to them. And I really would have liked, I really like to have more backstory on that. And as as yeah, I I've often been do, curious about that as well. As I often do when I'm uh, doing the show, while I'm talking about the movie, I will have it on with no sound in the background, just because it keeps me in the mood <laughs> for the movie. So I'm, uh, they're just landing the uh, the helicopter on top of the Daily Planet. So that reminds me that even though I talked about the grandeur of the first part of the movie. This whole the whole sequence with the helicopter and 
Clark Kent turning into Superman and you know making his grand appearance and rescuing the helicopter and the I've got you I've you've got me who's got you that whole thing it's just you know it, it shows you that the, while while the first part has more grandeur to it the second part is spectacular as well oh absolutely yeah that helicopter sequence i mean it stands the test of time you know the the hairstyles and the clothing styles you know may age and they and they may look dated and everything but the overall sequence of events and the way everything plays still works and it's still thrilling 40 plus years later it's it's amazing and that to me i mean that was the scene that that got me as a kid you know because my my whole origin story with this movie is and my dad took me to see it uh when it came out because this movie was it was a christmas release in 78 and I remember it, my dad took me, and it was my two best friends at the time. And we got there, and it's, it was so weird and, and so unlike my dad to actually get there well in advance of the movie because usually we were walking in late. Like the very first time I ever saw Star Wars, we walked into the theater as Luke was cleaning R2 just before the hologram comes out. So we were always late to the movies. And but did in you this hang particular around instance, until the next showing to see what you had missed? No, no, I didn't see that. it again for quite a while. Um, but with Superman, for some reason, we, we were there really early. And uh, it never happened before, and it never happened again, but we were actually offered uh, a tour of the projectionist area by the projectionist. So he actually took us into the projection booth and was showing us all around and how all the different equipment worked and everything. And I was just fascinated. It was so cool. And I remember there was a part where he let us kind of – you had to kind of stand up on a box and, like, stand up on your tippy toes. But you could look out the hole where the projector was actually projecting into the theater. And I did that, and I stood up, and I, and I looked, and I just happened to look out at the exact portion of the film where Superman was catching the helicopter. And you can imagine – you know, the, the effect that had on, on 10 year old me, it was just, I mean, it was, it was life changing. You know, I just, I, I totally was, was into it at that point and couldn't wait to get in the theater and actually see the movie, you know, myself, because that, that image has, has just stuck with me all these years. And, you know, that's why I say, you know, they, they may, they may build them bigger and, and grander and, you know, and in a lot of aspects better, but, you know, th this one just it holds up for me. And, uh, yeah, there's I, I, there's a thrill, just a, a, a zing that I get every time I watch that sequence. And I think one of the big things, again, you know, talking about the, the, the magic of it and why it works, I think a lot of it is just because it's practical. You know, it's it was in the, the age before, you know, the digital effects and the CGI and all that. So they had to be creative and they had to actually create ways of you know how are they going to make this guy fly how are they going to make it believable and not laughable you know how are they going to actually get this guy to catch a freaking falling helicopter and not make it look silly and you know like with cheesy models or something and i think they did an absolutely incredible job with that i mean there are effects in this movie that are so seamless that you don't even realize that you're watching a special effect which goes to the uh, they tagline. Just, they, they work. I'm sorry? I said that goes to the tagline of you will believe a man can fly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I mean, it, it's it's not without its problems. There are some some effects that have not held up as well as others, but overall, the effects have held up really, really well. And and the ones that seem to really stand the test of time are, are generally the flying bits, because they didn't do a whole lot of matting with the flying. Most of the matting stuff was done uh, against rear projection, and that stuff has held up really well. Yeah, I I, I don't have. I mean. I've seen the special effects done better in the 40 years since, no question about it. But I don't watch this thing and say, oh, my God, that looks so dated at all. Right. So so the special effects do do mostly hold up. So I, I don't have any issue with that at all. The, you know, the story really, I think, holds up because it's kind of timeless in the way that it's presented. Uh, you know, the two criticisms I've had of this movie over the years – one is the Otis thing, which I've kind of gotten over. And, I, you know, if other people are not, I understand, because I was like that, too. Uh, it's all, you know, whether, whether it bothers you or not is, I guess, up to your individual tastes. Uh, the only other sequence that I find kind of cringeworthy is the uh, can you read my mind stuff. <laughs> I knew that was coming. And I'm, yeah, sure, that, I'm sure on paper it worked. It just didn't work in execution. When they were yeah, editing it the together, they should have realized, uh-huh. you know, yeah, this, this sequence isn't really working. Let's leave out the, the poetry and just have them fly together. See, I I forgive that one because I, I think the scene, you know, now again, this is minus, you know, the, the silly narration and, and the little song. Because I, I, I guess it's supposed to actually be a song more than anything else. It's supposed to be, um, but she couldn't sing, so they had her. Right, like, right, exactly, yeah. But I think they could have just, you know, I think you could have had virtually the same scene with some great John Williams music and not had the poem being read behind it, and it would have been much more effective. Or well, it would have been the, as effective years, without being cringeworthy. You know, over the years, the the full soundtrack to the film ha- has been released a couple of times. Uh, Rhino released it sometime in the in the late '80s, and then um, more recently, for the 40th anniversary, they released a, another uh, copy of it, another rendition of it with, that even had you know more tracks and some lost music and that sort of thing. And one of the great tracks that's in there is the entire flight sequence from you know, from Lois's balcony, you know, all the way through, can you read my mind to when they come back to the balcony. And there's several different versions of that. There's the, the theatrical version with the narration and everything. There's like this weird disco version, but then there's a version that is all of the John Williams score and everything. But then when it gets to the, can you read my mind sequence just plays the underscore and does not play the narration. Now, when I listen to this score, you know, just for listening pleasure, and I listen to this one a lot, that's the version that I listen to. And I wish I had, like, video editing skills. I've never even really played with any sort of video editor, but I'd like to, I'd love to sit down with, like, the full length version of this, you know, the, the completely uncut version of Superman the movie, and make my own personal edit of the movie. And that's a change that I would make is to make that sequence minus the narration. Because I, th- I think the entire scene plays and I think it plays really, really well. I believe in the the budding romance between these characters. I believe in her infatuation with him and I think he's gaga over her. 
So the whole scene really plays, and I think it's beautiful. I think the photography is wonderful. I, I think it really feels like they're doing a, a ballet in the air. It's just that narration of, of that particular scene. And it's not even necessarily that, that the narration's bad. It's the delivery of it, and it's with the kind of, you know, th- this is a sequence that's dated. The music underneath them is very, you know, seven. It's om- it's it's like borderline disco. It's got a little bit of that, you know, janky janky stuff in there, and so it dates that that sequence. Um, even though the words she's actually saying or thinking or singing or whatever she's supposed to be doing are, are kind of try. They have a certain charm to them, you know, a certain like girlish innocence to them. It's just the way the delivery comes off, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work, but I'm a lot more forgiving of that scene than others. I, I've heard that scene so criticized over the, the, the two criticisms that seem to grow each year uh, of the film are, uh, is the Otis stuff and the, and the, can you read my mind? Uh, I've even seen some really, you know, it's those clickbait articles that get really nasty about that and, you know, and pointing out, you know, how bad it is and how cheesy. I, I don't think it's, bad i'll give you a cheesy but i don't think it's bad i think it's just you know it could be done better and it and it does date a bit in that sequence but you know well you know what it comes down to for me is and, and i i used already the word cringeworthy and i think that's overstating it uh in a movie that i really enjoy watching from beginning to end it's just a, a a part that I could do without is really what it comes down to. And, and and as we've kind of gone over at length, it's not the scene that I could do without. It's just that narration I could do without. Right. It doesn't sound to me uh, – well, first of all, I'm, I'm really not crazy about the whole way it's written. I like the concept of she's trying to figure out what his powers are. Can you read my mind? Uh, I don't mind that idea that she, you know, she's not sure what she's dealing with and she's trying to learn. But all that said, when the delivery on it doesn't sound to me like she's really thinking this as she's saying it, it just sounds to me like she's reading a poem. Uh, So, like I said, I I think in in the editing process, they should have watched this and said, you know what, kill kill the narration and just have the the music play. And I I can't imagine that they went through this without trying it that way. And somebody, I don't know if it's Dick Donner or somebody else, but somebody said, no, it works better with the narration. So, Well, I I suspect what was going on. I I mean, I I don't have a lot of evidence that this is so, but it's just a strong suspicion of what may have been going on with this. You have to remember the era that this movie came out. You had – I'll give you two great examples. Both John Williams uh, scored, uh, by the way. Um, the Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure. Now, I realize those are disaster films and not in the same genre and all, but they were still, they were big movies of kind of the pre-blockbuster era. They, they were the blockbusters of their time before that was really a term that was used. And both of those movies produced big hit songs from musical sequences in there that were scored by John Williams. Now, I've blanked uh, on the names of the – I know uh, one of them was uh, – oh, shit, I can't uh, – I'm completely blanking on it. But it, it, if you know the movies, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the Poseidon Adventure was the morning after. 
The more, yeah, the morning after, and I'm trying to remember what the one was from the Towering Inferno, but I'm blanking on the name of that one. That one I can't remember. But I, I'm I'm thinking that somebody may have been thinking, you know, can we get a hit single out of this? Because it it did get released as a as a 45, if memory serves right. I don't know how it did, but it did well enough that somebody did a new cover version of it a few years ago. So there's that, but that, that may have been the thought behind it was that, you know, maybe they could get some sort of a, a, of a marketing thing out of it that way. Let's see. Oh, the towering inferno is not in my available music at the moment. So I can't give you the name of that. I I'm completely blanking on the name of that damn song, but wait a minute. Is this it? It is. We may never love like this again. Oh yeah, okay, I remember that. Is that Seals and Croft? Uh, no, that's We May Never remember. Pass This Way Again. Right. No, this one is We May Never Love Like This Again. I can't remember who the hell the singer is. There was some famous female singer, but I don't. I don't remember what her name was. Everything in the folders listed is John Williams, and John Williams uh, clearly the didn't the sing after the song. Was, was a huge hit. Yeah. And I'm just thinking from that time, you also had, uh, what the heck was it, uh, the, that sickeningly sweet song. Uh, I can't even think of what the name of it was, but there was a movie that had, uh, Debbie Boone, You Light Up My Life. Oh, my God, I hated it. You Light song. Up My Life, yes, yes, yep. Oh, I hated that song so much. <laughs> but most of those songs like that I couldn't stand. I can't remember who the hell sings that song. Somebody, Somebody's listening right now and screaming it at us, but I, I can't remember who. I want to say like Rin, Linda Ronstadt or somebody like that, but I can't remember. So the thing is I like Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> but uh, anyway, not, not, not quite Debbie Boone doing uh, <laughs> You Light Up My Life, but Maureen yeah. McGovern, that was oh, it. Oh, well, she's the one who did the morning after. Yeah, okay. Yep. So, again, I, I like I said, I didn't want to make this into a let's talk about individual scenes, let's talk about it. I wanted to go more into the feelings and all of that because, uh, again, we could have gone on, we could go on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, but I wanted to make this a regular, you know, regular length episode. Uh, anything more that you think we should hit on before you give the rating that everybody knows that you're going to give? Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about the music in sure, this. Please. Um, the, this is, this is, in my opinion, one of the absolute best John Williams scores that he ever did. And that's really saying a lot when you consider the body of the guy's work. I mean, this is the guy that gave us Jaws, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, Hook, you know, just so absolutely. My favorite I mean, unknown gem by him is the John Wayne movie, The Cowboys. Yeah, The Cowboys. I love yeah, the theme, the, the main mean, theme from that. Uh, Close Encounters. I mean, just an incredible body of work, and this falls more or less right in the middle of his truly like golden period, where you know he had behind him, he had. Um, Jaws, Star Wars, you know, and, and then of course the earlier stuff that he had done too, like Sugarland Express, Land uh, of the Giants. I, I think 1941 was behind him at this point. 
1941, I think, was later. Oh, was it later? Okay. I think that was like around 1980. But then, you know, right right around the corner, you've got, you know, Dracula. You've got The Empire Strikes Back. You've got Raiders, you know, a couple years later. So, I mean, right in that sweet spot of when when John Williams could just honestly, he just couldn't do any wrong. And he was really knocking it out of the park. Um, And while I've never really sat and like actively tried to rank uh, his soundtracks, I I think this one's probably quite honestly, this one's probably my number two. And for a lot of reasons, because I think it hits all the beats of a great score. Um, it hits all the emotions and that's always really important to me in, in good, uh, you know, a, a good score and good soundtrack music is, you know, when you've got something that is clearly one genre, but you can still have the, the full range of emotions in there and there's everything, you know, there's, there's definitely action. I mean, arguably the greatest superhero theme of all time is John Williams, Superman, the music or Superman, the movie, because, um, Donner himself commented that he knew that this was right and that this would work when the music literally speaks Superman. You know, when it when it says Superman, da 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 da, you know, he he was just blown away by that. And I think that's one of the reasons that the music really works. But I mean, you've also got you know a great love theme in there that I think is vastly underrated because I, I hardly ever hear anybody really comment on the love theme of Superman. But it's it's really good. The Krypton scene, you know, the Krypton music is great. Um, you know, if I had to pick like my top, you know, ten, maybe even my just my top five single tracks of favorite music ever the fortress of solitude is going to be on that list i love that from start to finish i think it's it's just it's beautiful it just has you know it just has a beautiful sound to it and it's kind of mysterious and a little bit eerie but it's also very majestic and uh and kind of magical too and i really like that uh, his stuff in Smallville is very emotional and, you know, and really evokes, uh, you know, an emotional response that way. So, I mean, it, it runs the full gamut. And to me, the, the sound of, you know, the, the sign of a really good soundtrack, especially when it's released as an album is, is there anything that I don't like on it? And honestly, there's not, I mean, other than, um, you know, preferring the, uh, vocalist version of, uh, can you read my mind to the one with the vocals in it? There's really not a track on that soundtrack that I don't like. Um, I mean, if I, if I had any criticism of that soundtrack at all, it would be, I, I wish the villain theme was a little stronger. Cause I think his theme that he did much later for, uh, like say the nuclear man in Superman four, I think is an awesome theme. And I think people forget that he wrote that. Uh, I think that's a much better theme than, say, like Luther's Lair. But that's still a good theme, and it works in the movie because when Otis is walking down the train tracks to that theme playing in the background, totally works because you get this sense of kind of dum-de-dum, you know, from this kind of stupid character. Yeah, well, so, yeah. I well, mean, no, the it, Otis theme, I mean, we do that all the time joking around. Uh, you know, I mean, every one of them is evocative of feelings. Absolutely, or or, or, a, or a sense, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, every one of them sets sets the stage for what we're getting, and 
it's it is a movie where I was aware of the soundtrack because it's hard not to be. Right. Even as I was watching the movie the first time, but it never took me out of the movie. It always served more to emphasize the feelings, and that's Absolutely. there's no problem there. Absolutely. I mean, it's much like Jaws and, and so many of the other movies that he scored. The music that he wrote for this really complements the movie and, and in some instances, in some scenes, makes the movie. Um, I know there was a, a really cool thing that somebody did on video years ago. I think it was one of the supplemental features on one of the commentary tracks or something like that to Jaws where they showed the scene in Jaws where the, the two guys go out on the dock and they're trying to catch the shark with like a roast or something, or like it was like a, like a ham or something. Mm-hmm. And they show that scene without the music and it just, it's so boring. It's so bland, but with the music in it makes that scene. I wish somebody could do that with the helicopter sequence in this, in Superman, the movie, because that music in that portion of the movie, when that scene ends, or more specifically, I would say the moment when Superman actually catches the copter, because there's that moment where everybody on the streets kind of panic, like, okay, he got the girl, but now there's a helicopter falling at him. But when he actually like speeds up, grabs it, and then steadies himself, and then starts to reascend the way the music kicks up in that movie, it's, it's so triumphant and so victorious and just had, I mean, you can't help, but want to just jump to your feet and pump your fist. It's just, it's one of those like, hell yeah moments. And it's all driven by the score. And, uh, that's, I mean, I just think it's a fantastic score. Honestly, to, to my mind, um, the only time Williams ever did it better was the Empire Strikes Back. I still think that's uh, that's his top score, but this one is nipping at its heels. It's so close. Just a fantastic score. Oh, and uh, so couldn't agree with you more. Beyond that, I mean, the only other thing I really got is uh, you know I, I as much praise as this movie gets, as as well as it holds up, and you know. Uh, I was so glad to see it return to theaters for the for the 40th anniversary and all that. I still feel like even to this day that Donner still doesn't get the credit that's due him. Even with all the accolades he has gotten over the years and all the fans and everything, I still feel like somehow he deserves more because you know, I know we've talked before in the past about looking at you know, some of the more modern movies. I know we've talked about the Avengers as a good example of this. The The first Avengers movie is, is a miracle of a film. It's a film that just, frankly, it shouldn't work. It, it should come off as laughable and ridiculous. You've got these guys running around in these gaudy, ridiculous outfits, um, and they're so mismatched. You've got the, you know, the super soldier in the, in the kind of silly costume. You've got a, you know, a guy wearing a, a ridiculous armor. You've got a, a Norse god. And now all of a sudden they're all on the screen together fighting and, and fighting together. And it just, you know, you throw in more characters and you've got a flying aircraft carrier. And it just, it, it, it lends itself to just pure, like, what the hell is this schlock? But somehow it works. And that's what this movie is. I mean, it has so many diverse elements and, and so many characters and so many things that just, it could have been a disaster. And in my mind, it, it could have been a disaster, but for one person, and that's Dick Donner. 
he he realized what was happening with this movie when the Salkinds were, you know, when they bought it and, and the vision that they had being so completely removed from what he thought Superman as an American icon should be. And it was really the, the pure force of his personality that that's not only saved the movie, but made the movie what it what it is and what it became. And it was his mantra of, you know, verisimilitude. And uh, I, I just I don't think the guy gets enough credit for it because, I mean, he really made uh, an incredible movie that, I mean, here it is 40 years old and, and it holds up. It's still the definitive Superman for so many people. I mean, look how many versions of Superman we've gotten since this. And this is still the one that people point to and go, well, you know, this is really the only one that ever got it right. Oh, and and Dick, I think Dick Tonner it's is a great director. I mean, it's it's absolutely you know, he he did this, and you know, let's he, it didn't end here. First of all, you see the difference between what he did in Superman two and what Richard Lester did in Superman two. And I, while the Donner cut doesn't do it justice because it's an incomplete version, right? He certainly had a better idea of where he was going with the character and being respectful to the character than than Richard Lester did. Uh, but then, you, you know, you top that off with he did The Omen, he did Lethal Weapon. I mean, the, the guy is a great director. Absolutely. It's as simple it as that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as I think we could just take for granted this movie is Jaws. You, you know it is on my scale. Absolutely it is. And, and quite frankly, it is on mine too because, it's again, it's, it's, the, it's the foundation on which all good comic book movies are built. I think that's the best way I could put it. It's the first one that got it right, and uh, they they all learned from this one. And, and you know, you talked about the fantastical elements of the movie. I don't. I, I I think you and I are in agreement, even though we disagree on some of the movies that have come from it, that we don't want the fantastic to be portrayed as not fantastic. We don't want them to have to make everything in real life. But when you can take the fantastic and present it as fantastic and still have it be acceptable, even though it's clearly not real life, that's what good comic book fantasy is made of. Absolutely. And that's what Superman does. And that's what the Avengers do. And that's what all the real, you know, the, the best comic book movies do that. Uh, you know, one of the movies you and I disagree on, and I think strongly because I like it a lot and I know you hate it, is The Dark Knight. But I've always said I think The Dark Knight is a good movie. I don't think The Dark Knight is a good comic book movie. Right. For exactly that reason. It's not really a comic book movie. It's trying to present Batman as a real life thing uh, in many, many ways that, that just... It's not a comic book in the way it's presented there. And I don't want to get into a whole big thing on that movie. Uh, but the best comic book movies can make the fantastic feel real, even though they don't try to present it as real. And I think Superman, the movie, does that. Absolutely. I, I think that's, you know, again, I think that's one of the, the secrets to why it works, is it, it just, for, for as far out, a concept as as it is, you know, for one thing, he he comes from another planet, um, you know. But then when you you get into you know just the basic elements of Superman once he's on Earth, you know, the the costume, the powers, you know, the flight, all of that, 
I, I think it does a wonderful job of kind of grounding it all to where it just runs with it and and it's so it believes in itself so that you believe in it as well and i think that was the mantra that uh that donner was really going for the, the you know the verisimilitude let's make this believable but it doesn't do it to a point that it's dour in its believability or or it's it's not embarrassed of its source material yeah exactly Exactly. That's to me. That's the biggest thing. I don't like when when comic book movies are afraid to say they're comic book movies, and that's something that that has kind of been remedied in the last couple of years because the genre has become popular. But you know, it used to be. Remember, they'd, they'd come out and they'd say from the graphic novel because they could. They were afraid to say it was a comic book. Right. So, you know, or even you know, I mean, even in the George Reeves show they used to say superman is based on the character from superman magazine magazine it was yeah. no superman magazine it was a comic book right. but but anyway i don't want to i don't want to go off on on that tangent too much uh I, I think you know i think that pretty much presents superman as uh you know we both think it's a great film and, and i think that does it justice and i want to thank you for taking the time to come on to episode number 100 should I get to episode 200, are you available? Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe we'll do Superman 2. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it doesn't take 100 episodes, but if it does, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Right. But yeah, I, uh, I consider this quite an honor to be brought in for the 100th episode. Thank you very much. I know this is something we've been talking about doing a long time, so I'm, I'm glad that we finally got to it. Me too, and I hope everybody enjoyed listening, and I hope you come back in two weeks for episode 101. Good night, everybody. Can you read my mind? Do you know what it is that you do to me? I don't know who you are. friend from another star. Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. Will you look at me, quivering, like a little girl, shivering. You can see right through me. Can you read my mind? Can you picture the things I'm thinking of? Wondering why you are all the wonderful things you are. You can fly. You belong in the sky. You and I belong to each other if you need a friend I'm the one to fly to if you need to be loved here I am read my mind <laughs> <laughs>